Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together, Bruce and I have written 35 cookbooks, including our latest Instant Pot Bible Copycat Recipes. Ooh, restaurant favorites from your Instant Pot, mm. as well as Grain Mains, I think the only cookbook out there to make whole grains the center of the plate. You can find these books wherever books are sold, as they used to say when I was a kid 500,000 years ago. Today on this podcast, we're going to talk about food sustainability. I know it sounds like a bummer. Don't turn us off yet. We've got some <laughs> real tips about sustainability. We have a one-minute cooking tip. As always, we have an interview with one of my favorite people on the planet, and we're going to talk about what's making us happy in food this week. So let's start off with food sustainability. What does it mean? Well, and does it matter? Well, That's really important. It's really hard to say. I mean, we could start with the EPA and we can give their definition, and it's difficult. The EPA's definition is that it's foods created without damaging or depleting natural resources for present and future generations. And the reason I say it, that sounds good. I've read it about 50 times so far this morning as I've looked at this thing that we're recording. And, you know, I have to say that I don't know what damaging means. I don't know what depleting means. I don't know what natural means. I don't know what present means. And I don't know what <laughs> future means. I mean, all those words have to be adjudicated by somebody and somebody has to figure out what those words mean. And they're all difficult. And we could get into a huge fight. I'm sure I could get into a Twitter war right now over what depleting means. What is depleting? How depleting is depleting? Well, my grand- <laughs> well I think depleting is when you, when you take something away and you don't add it back. So let's say the California, you know, the valley where they're growing more than half the vegetables and fruits that we consume in this country, they're pulling water out of the aqua at a rate bigger than nature can put it back. Well, that's depleting a natural resource, both I for suppose. us and future generations. But I really, really don't want to starve. So there's part of my problem. <laughs> I don't want to either. So, uh, you know, I, it's hard to know exactly what damaging and depleting is. Um, many people would argue what natural is and what resource is natural and what is not. Um, I've been in Twitter wars, oh, good God help me, with people who claim that wells are unnatural because you can't get your water from underground. The only natural source of water is above ground. So that seems... Wait, so it's, it's unnatural water? Yes, that's right. It's yeah. unnatural because so you should only have rainwater. You should only drink stream water, which means that we'd have giardia. <laughs> you can see what Mark and I both worry about. I know. Well, we live very rurally, and we live on a well, so our water supplies with a well. So you know, I mean, you'd have giardia. It's just ridiculous. There, the, these terms have become so polarized, but. Nonetheless, you should be worried about sustainability if you have kids, grandkids, grandnieces, grandnephews, if you just have people younger than you are who you love. There are things that we can all do to help with sustainability and help make sure the future generations will be able to still eat the way we do. And they're really easy, right? This is like really easy. Number one, if you buy from a local farmer's market, right? You go to a farmer's market, buy local farms, and they're implementing sustainable agricultural practices, you will help. So how do you know if they are? Yeah, here's a key. Ask them. Yeah. Just and- go to your local farmer's market. Talk to the folks selling the food. You purchase your meat directly from them if you can at a farmer's market. I, I have a quibble. 
Can I give my quibble? Of course. My quibble is that when you ask them, okay, so I go to the farmer's market, I walk up to the stand, I say to the guy, do you farm sustainably? Who's going to say no? Is he going to stand there and go, no, no, I do not. I do not farm sustainably. <laughs> no, of course not. He's going to say yes. So the thing is, go to a farmer's market if you can. Check out stuff there even if it's a small corner farmers market by your work check out stuff there and you probably are hitting closer to the mark that's that's what i think is important i mean it's impossible to be perfect here it's just it's impossible it's There's impossible no but there are things you could do because by purchasing your meat and produce directly from the source at yeah. a farmers market or even getting to your store and finding local stuff, it ensures that you will have great food, but it also makes sure that more of that money you pay for goes directly to the farmers, which also is a great thing. Which also actually aids in sustainability because a farmer who has more money is less likely to do damaging practices to her or his land in order to get more out of that land. Bruce and I, fortunately, I guess, fortunately, sometimes it's unfortunately, live very rurally in New England. And we have two beef producers within a very, very easy drive of mm -hmm. our house. We can go to either of these places. We can pick up beef, ground beef, all different kinds of, actually, pork and lamb, mm -hmm. too. Um, in fact, one of them, even good grief, sells foie gras. This foie gras is being sold in downscale rural. So <laughs> it's very funny that it's there but yet there it is and that farmer that sells that she's actually on her way to visit us today and bring me a box of meat um, she wants to get into some prepared foods so i am developing a meatball for her I'm using her ground beef and some other secret ingredients it's going to be actually keto and all natural and organic and she's going to sell them cooked in local stores and local health food stores to the farmers market so that's another way you can look around for not only the meat but prepared foods that are done that way. But Mark, what do you do if you don't have a farmer's market? You, you go to the supermarket and you look for seasonal produce and you look for seasonal foods in your supermarket. I think that that's a really easy way to practice a sustainability. Look, you can't go crazy. We, I admit it. I admit that we are all pushed. We're all on antidepressants. We're <laughs> all on anti-acid reflux drugs. We are all on sleep medications. Our lives are insane. And the culture that we live in expects insanity out of us. Okay, given all that is true. You cannot, I get it, stand in a supermarket and look at every package of strawberries and wonder about their sustainabilities. But you can buy strawberries when you know they're sort of in season. Or you can just look up at the sign and it, if it says local mm. strawberries, you can buy them and know that you're helping with sustainability. Does that mean you can't buy them in the winter? No, of course not. But it means that if you have a choice, you should pick the ones under the sign that say local strawberries or local pears or local lettuce or name it or a cheesemaker near you. It helps. It really does it help. It does help. Because look, if you buy things out of season, as Mark said, think about it. That strawberry has to come from Chile, right? It's going from South America. Right. And from South America is a much bigger trip in a, on planes, on boats, and to get to you in New York or Chicago my, or Washington. My favorite thing is still the cups of fruit in the airports, the cups of sliced pears and the cups <laughs> of sliced apples that say product of Chile packaged in China. And now I'm standing in Dulles Airport in Washington, <laughs> D.C., looking at this thing that has traveled way far widelier than I have. So That's not sustainable pairs. No, not hardly. Mm -mm. Um, 
you know, listen, and here's the thing. I have bought those pairs, so this is not a scolding question. I have bought those pairs because I have been hungry and I have wanted something to eat in the airport. There is no way anyone can be perfect at this. Perfection mm -hmm. is the enemy of the good. It is, and so we're not asking you to be perfect. We're just saying when you can and there's a choice, try and choose if you can to buy local, to buy in season. All of that will help. And there's one other thing that can help, and we have talked about this many times. We even put this in a few episodes ago about a, you know New Year's resolutions and some of the things you can do. What is that, Mark? It's cut back on meat consumption, and I want to say that Bruce and I have done this. We have done two things in our life. We have basically tossed out refined grains. So we don't eat, uh, let's say, just refined grain pasta anymore. Mm -hmm. We tend to go for the lentil pasta, the chickpea pasta, where neither of us have gluten intolerance. It just has to do with eating, what do I want to say, lower refined products. I know the lentils are refined to produce lentil pasta. I get it. But still, it's about eating a fuller nutrient-valued food than refined grains. And does that mean, and I've said this a million times to Bruce privately, that I don't want white rice? No. When Bruce makes mapa tofu, which mm. I love more than I can possibly tell you, when Bruce makes mapa tofu, I want white rice. And you have to explain mapa tofu there. Maybe someone listening who doesn't know what mapa tofu is. Oh, my God. Well, Bruce makes it with ground pork, which is not exactly 100% traditional, but it's this ground pork tofu super spicy Chinese stew. It's really aromatic. It's got numbing qualities from Sichuan peppercorns. It's nicely hot. I pour additional chili oil on mine. And all of that means that I like the white rice because the sweet balances all of the savory, bitter, and extremely spicy elements of the dish. So am I going to throw all the white rice just out of my house? No. But when I otherwise have a choice, am I going to eat brown rice for this? And this is also what we've done. So I've gone a long way around to say we've decided that we're going to eat maybe once a week, a vegetarian meal. At least one dinner a week. We do that. And cutting back on that meat consumption helps so much. Livestock farming is a main reason for global land clearing. It leads to animal <laughs> and plant endangerment and extinction. So we're not giving up meat, and we don't no, say no, anyone no, 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 no. should give up meat if you like meat. Just cut back one day a week. I mean, Bruce has been making this dish with yellow lentil pasta and mushrooms and gigante beans and sun-dried tomatoes and, and, olives. and olives, and it's really super delicious and super comforting, and it goes great with a glass of red wine, and it's just, to me, a perfect dinner, and it's a nice hearty, wintry, vegetarian meal. So those are some things you can do to help with sustainability, even if you don't have kids, even if you're not worried about how your grandkids are going to eat in 30 or 40 years, you know you're doing something to help the planet and help future generations. Okay, so segment two. Our one-minute cooking tip. We've done this every week for months now. It seems to be the most Google searched part of our podcast. So what's our one minute cooking tip for this week? Never, ever, 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 ever use damp or wet pot holders to take something hot out of the oven. I don't even think we have to explain that, do we? You know, sometimes you'll <laughs> accidentally grab one off the counter that's a slightly wet. That heat is going to mm. transfer directly from the hot pan through the wet towel and burn your hand. And because the w moisture in the towel is going to become steam instantly. instantly and so trapped inside the towel. Dry pot holders, dry towels, always never use a damp or wet pot holder or oven mitt. <laughs> 
we get to the next segment, I do want to ask everyone to please subscribe to this podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts from, just hit subscribe. If you're listening to this on Facebook, hit like, share it, let other people know about it. And if you are somewhere where you can leave a comment, please leave us a comment, rate us. It all helps. And thanks. Okay. Segment three. I said, one of my favorite people on the planet. This is Bruce's interview with the unbelievably astounding, revelatory, and goddess-like Lenny Sorensen of Indigo House. We met Lenny well, several years ago, uh, but oh, she's just a treasure, a national treasure. I can't wait to hear this interview. I am honored to be speaking with Lenny Sorensen, perhaps the country's most unsung food historian. She has created and runs Indigo House. It's her five-acre farmstead home in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Her work there is the culmination of 30 years as an historian of African-American history and food culture. At Indigo House, she cooks, she teaches, she gardens, she feeds animals, she writes, she researches and lectures. Lenny, welcome to Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Thank you very much. It is absolutely delight to be with you. Mark and I met Lenny years ago uh, when she was the food historian at Jefferson's Monticello and where she taught about food culture of the enslaved people who lived and served there. Now you're running Indigo House. What is the idea behind Indigo House and what do you do there? Well, I, I'm a teacher, so I'm a very bossy person. And, and I'm, I'm bossy about food. I'm bossy about farming. I'm bossy about what people should be reading. But as a teacher, what I really want to do is have people feel comfortable with to appreciate food preparation and to really think about the people who produce the food, those laborers, not merely regionally and not even just within the American borders, which is extremely important, but globally. Really think about where the food comes from, those workers in those fields in different quantities in different hemispheres. How do we, as a country that has actually very few people in a 300, what is it, 20 million people, uh, how we affect the larger global market, what is being produced and what we eat, and how deeply privileged we are, even within the context of having pockets of people within our own country who are deeply deprived of that accessibility to foodstuffs. There's always that tied in with it. And a phenomena that I have begun to call is the phenomena of fear of food. I really want to help people get over fear of food. Food is, it's not something to be afraid of. First of all, it's something we have to do every day. It's not something we get to avoid. To have something so primal, so basic, so universal, so utterly necessary, to have this elitist, twee, overarching, privileged notion of fear of food stuffs, really it saddens me. Do you see fear of food as being an American thing, or do you see that being a global human condition? I think maybe humans in many groups across 30,000 years of food, just to name that, that space of time, people have developed fear of certain foods and often, of course, appropriately, it'll poison you. We have fine-tuned that in this culture, in this country, and especially over the last 30 years, as economics and people who derive profitability from developing that notion of fear of food. You know, I'm one of those always follow the money. To whose advantage is it for you to think this, that, or the other thing about this, that, or the other thing? And it's also leading up to World War II, and then after World War II, we've had a 
deeply predominantly urban population of people who are removed from any serious contact with the realities of farming. They don't know any dairy farmers. They've never been on a dairy farm. They've never seen the great combines sweep through the northern prairies, 20 across, taking out those fields of wheat. Oh, it's a most magnificent sight you could ever see. It's very exciting and beautiful. They've never butchered an animal or even seen an animal butchered. And they don't really cook because it's not exciting. It's not part of the plot. They don't see a portrait of the daily necessities of life of which this one, if you don't do it, you die, which is to eat. (laughs) You got to eat every day, every damn day. But when I look at the realities of some people's life, they have to eat, but they just can't cook. And I understand the pressures of living in certain cities, having certain family obligations, having certain career obligations that keep you from cooking. But I agree with you that the awareness of what you're eating, even if someone else makes it for you, should be there. The awareness of where that came from, what the human cost of it is, what the global cost of it is, needs to be there. Yes. And so for people who, as you say, to people whose lives hardly allow them the kind of time to really do a lot of cookery. But now, hopefully, what I do, what I'm aiming to do, I'm trying to write a book on home provisioning, which is no matter how you live, you know, 400 square foot apartment or, you know, 50 acre, whatever, how to have what you need when you need it. Must that be only things you've gathered and provisioned for yourself? Or can that include things that you've purchased? Oh, absolutely. No, it includes any other stuff. Chocolate chips, to rice. I don't care. But my son made a great example. He says, the nicest thing about home provisioning is that when it's three days snow, you got a three days snowstorm and you wake up in the morning, there's 10 inches of snow on the ground and your kids, which are now home that you wish had been at their dad's when the snow hit, but they're not there with you. And you've now got everything you need in your house to make chocolate chip cookies all day. If you want that facet of having what you need when you need it is a combination of thinking out what are the kinds of things you personally need. What do you need? And in, in which case you have to look a bit about it. What do you eat? What do you like? What are the components of it? How would you store it? If you don't have much room, how would you get it? All of those things have to have to factor in. And those are great so that you have a store of a basic kind of food that pleases and comforts you. That, that if the lights went out, for 10 hours, you would not be hungry and you would not feel like you couldn't offer your neighbor a portion of what you're eating. There's that. There's that second component. How much of what you do comes from your own your own labor, your own effort? And that really varies. Again, you live in a 480 square foot apartment like I did in Detroit for 18 months. I had one bright window, and I had a big pot with herbs in Okay, so I had fresh rosemary, I had basil, I had a nice thyme. That's what I could grow. And that meant every time I made tomato sauce, I could pick my own rosemary. And if that's what it is that you can do, go for it. Because you are now self-sufficient in rosemary, at least for right now. That's You got to start where <laughs> the hell you are. You know what I mean? And then every Saturday... 
I went to the Eastern market and I would buy what I needed, fresh veg and stuff uh, to see me through the week. So yeah, I've, I've been where you know, I grew a little bit. I bought more. And letting people know that it's okay to be self-sufficient with one thing that you don't have to be self-sufficient with olive oil. No, you can't be because there is a difference between self-sufficiency and self-reliance. All of us can learn self-reliance. And that means turning to ourselves to see how much of whatever, whether it's car repair, fixing a light bulb, okay, self-reliance is a strong quality that is wonderful to have and to teach our children. None of us are self-sufficient because coffee and dried bananas and cashew nuts, for Christ's sake, and all of the spices and quinoa, all of that kind of stuff, over and above that they have to be processed in order to be shipped. They don't come from wherever the hell you live in the United States. If you want to have this shit, you've got to be connected to the, the, the global world, which means you then have to think about who produces it. When you talk to people about this, how does that work into the dinners you prepare at Indigo House? Is it dinner and a lecture? Is it <laughs> dinner and a scold? How does that work? A dinner where people have paid me, uh, for which I am immensely grateful, and come into my home as guests. Do not get scolded. I get a talk. I sit close to the table. And we talk about the theme of the dinners. The dinners are in themes. If it's 300 years of women chefs, of Southern women chefs, we range from the cooks in the 1770 South Carolina kitchen. I'm discussing almost always the cooks themselves. How did they learn how to do this? How did they, what was the atmosphere? Where was it grown? Who, who provided it? How did it, how does it fit into the larger scheme of things? And of course, that particular meal ends with bread pudding by Edna Lewis, who is my icon. A simple sounding a dessert that probably millions of people have eaten many, 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 many pans of bread pudding. Is it just this wonderful uh, thing of what, he, what you can do with bread and butter and cream and, you know, a little nutmeg and some raisins? God, you know, who would have thought? Who would have thought? And yet it gets better and better every time you do it. Oh, I love making it. And I think of her every time. And I have the wonderful person in my life of her younger sister, Ruth, who encourages me. Her younger sister, who is 99 years old, a force of nature who I can talk to and get revved up again, you know, to feel at all discouraged. In that particular lesson, we're talking about people. Well, I'm always talking about people because that's who it's all, you know. That's where all the food is coming from and getting cooked by and all. But it, there's culture and stuff. And people are eating. Uh, they get to ask questions and we get to have, you know, it just generates conversation. If it's Mary Randolph's uh, global dinner, which is curry chicken in the Indian manner, using her book, The Virginia Housewife, then we really get to talk about that international world of trade that begins with the first contact of Europeans and the New World. Um, what all that, how all that evolved and what it meant, and particularly Mary Randolph's time, which is 1790s to about 1815. So how were those connected and how what we're eating or what, what are parts of it and how interesting it is that she's got a recipe for a fantastic curry powder, which means, of course, that her cooks knew how to make curry powder. So after emancipation, it is no wonder that you have cooks who were trained under the Mary Randolph technique using her book, how they knew how to make curry pot. They knew how to make curry this and curry that. So that when you then read, say, Frida DeKnight's wonderful book, 1948, she was the food editor for Ebony Magazine. 
uh, you're not surprised to see dishes with exotic spices. Uh, she's showing how American Negroes, which is the word that she would have used at the time, eat uh, and are part of a, an eclectic, wide American food scene. So it's a way of really talking about food transference and how we learn to use various things. So, so every meal comes with a lecture, yes, but it's an upbeat lecture. And if people later, you know, often people end up hanging out here. I've had people hanging out till 11 o'clock at night and I've had to make them go home. You know, as the bartender says, you don't have to go home, but you do have to leave here. I've had to pull that one every once in a while. But at that point, sometimes we do get into more serious topics and and I get asked really serious questions and I always try to answer them as seriously as, as they want. It's not hard to understand why people would want to hang out and spend more time with you. It's just, I could spend hours and hours and hours talking about this with you. But let me just also say that the work you're doing to expose people to things they might not have been aware of, you're doing that one small group of visitors at a time. Is that frustrating to you that it's such a small group one at a time? How do you see the philosophy you teach at Indigo House becoming more widespread? Well, I really love the one-on-one -on -one contact. I was a performer for many years, and so a lot of it is has elements of performance, of pleasing people and getting, you know, reactions from them. But why I'm hopefully going to write a book, which is daunting and um, uh, but on home provisioning is maybe it will let that could reach a broader a broader audience for at least that particular part of my of my of my teaching. I want to develop digital access so that more people can come just the same way that we're talking now. We can talk back and forth uh, in many windows. I've now attended enough Zoom meetings to have a sense of how that works and. I think it's really damn cool to be able to talk to, what, 30, 40 people who live around the world or across the country at any one time. And they can ask you a question. I, I just think that's really excellent. I love Facebook for the very same reason. When I think of all the cooks that I know via Facebook, who I would never have had the opportunity to meet or talk to or exchange ideas uh, with or high fives, you know, uh, I th really think that's super. So I'm hoping that that will do. But again, it's just me. And I'm just going to do my day to day. I still got to feed my chickens and decide whether or not I'm going to raise a pig this year, have, you know, decide how a class is going to go. Is it going to be, especially given our current circumstances, how in person can I do what I do? Booker T. Washington said, you know, you just got to drop your bucket where you are. I am undone by what you do and how you do it. I encourage everyone to check out Lenny Sorensen on Facebook and Indigo House and see what she's doing. If you get a chance to go down to Blue Ridge Mountains, get in contact. If you go to my website, which is indigohouse.us, you can sign up for my monthly newsletter. It's a free email newsletter that has about what I'm doing, sometimes has recipes, has a little bit, you know, kind of my plans. And that way people can kind of keep up with me as well. Go to indigohouse.us. Definitely sign up for Lenny's newsletter. It will change the way you think about food and the way you talk to people about food and eating. And Lenny, you are amazing. Thank you so much for sharing just 
a few minutes with us today. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. That was unbelievable. I am only jealous that you got to talk to Lenny and I did not. <laughs> that just seems wrong in the scope of things. So finally, our traditional fourth segment. I don't even know how you follow Lenny. Our traditional fourth <laughs> segment. What's making us happy in food this week? And you get to go first. What's making me happy is jarred laksa curry paste. <laughs> L-A-K-S-A. Now, I'm laughing. <laughs> It's a Southeast Asian condiment. Laksa curry is usually served as a soup with noodles. I've done my own twist on using this paste in meat curries. And in fact, last night for dinner, I made a lamb curry with onions and ginger and little bony lamb riblets, laksa curry paste, and rich, super fatty coconut cream. And man... It was so good. And we ate brown rice with it. We did. Yeah, we went was. for the full brown rice with it. It was perfect because the brown was rice was so super hearty. Good. It was really great. Okay, what's making me happy in this week? Salty brown rice crackers. Mm. I <laughs> love brown rice crackers. I have developed a huge taste for them in our search for wholer grains in our food. And I love them. And I don't love the no salt ones <laughs> i like them really good and salty because they have this kind of more savory taste to them and the salt really brings that out oh gosh i love little crunchy brown rice crackers especially with a little piece of cheese on top of them very very delicious so that's the podcast for this week we talked about food sustainability we hope we gave you some actual tips about how to do it we Bruce talked to Lenny Sorensen. We gave you a one-minute cooking tip, and we told you what's making us happy and food this week. Why do you not? How can you not subscribe? How can you not like this podcast? You should rate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for rating it. You should drop a comment. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for dropping a comment. And you should check us out on our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark.